Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special and still very regular Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, Matt. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. It's a bit, it's a bit drizzly today on Southern Highlands. Disappointing, is it, but you know. Is it drizzly on Sunday or drizzly on Thursday? And that is the existential question we're going to leave our listeners to ponder while we move <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. We are, of course, recording this on Thursday, the 11th. So whatever happens between now and then, we don't know yet. You know, but we don't know by the time you're listening to this. So there you go. Although we know by the time they're listening to it, which is also weird because the, there's the us now and the, and the us later and I'm moving on. Uh, my question from Clayton to kick us off. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a regular listener to your podcast. Thank you, mate. And also a subscriber to both Motley Fool Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities Services. Well, thank you very much. My partner and I currently invest regularly, monthly, in a mixture of both ETFs and individual share picks from both of your services. Thanks, mate. However, with the recent hype around house price growth across Australia, we may have mentioned that once or twice, mate, and currently historically low interest rates, I can't help but wonder, should we be focusing some of our efforts into perhaps buying an investment property as well? My question, I guess, in your opinion, do you think it's okay to continue to invest entirely in shares over a lifetime? with the exception of buying a home to live in, he says, or should people try to build up a portfolio of both residential property and shares for more diversification? Also, do you know if there are any REITs that focus on residential property? And if so, are there any you would recommend to look at? I know you can't give personal advice, so I've attempted to word this as best I can. Thank you, mate. However, feel free to reword to suit if needed. Nope, all good, Clayton. Well, our answer will be general, even if your question is personal. Thanks again for your services. They have helped us immensely on our investing journey. Cheers, Clayton. Well, thank you, mate. That's very, very kind. Doc, it's a really good question about diversification. We talk about it a lot. We talked about it only on Friday in the context of different shares, not necessarily shares and property. What do you reckon, mate? Is it, is it smart for Australian investors to have a combination of shares and property in their portfolios? Well, I mean, it, it depends, right? I mean, the answer is it depends because, um, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, right? If you're, if you're looking for some yield, uh, regular yield, so you invest in property, I, I assume you're going to invest it for and then have it rented out. Mm-hmm. You're going to get some income coming in and um, the income is effectively like a yield on your investment and you're, you know, and assume, I mean, there's, of course, cost if you're going to borrow. So, I mean, for yield-hungry investors, it could be something to consider. Uh, the the thing I'll point out though is I mean when <laughs> these sort of things tend to be uh, cyclical to some extent I mean because th- the price is a function to some extent of uh, the interest rates currently right so the interest rates are definitely forever not going to stay low and uh, <laughs> prices right now are sky high right see so. Uh, in that sense, like if, if, if I buy a property right now, I don't know if I'm going to make capital gains or not, right? I mean, that's, that would be my question to myself. Right. And um, the other thing I like to look at is if you live in Australia, you work in Australia, you have, a, you have a home in Australia, presumably, you can easily see how much of your assets, net assets, are tied to one location, one country, um, and everything else, right? And therefore, do you want more mm. of more exposure <laughs> yeah. to uh, to one country, one location, one dollar, uh, or one type of dollar via more investment in property? Well, that's the other question to think about. So, I mean, again, there's no perfect answer. I don't have a perfect answer for this, but those are some of the things that I think about. 
Those are good ones, mate. I like those a lot. Um, I my general view is that I don't. It's hard, right? I think honestly, I actually think the diversification benefits of residential property are actually less now than they used to be, in large part because the housing market is now being treated as a financial asset in a way it really never was in the past. What I mean by that is the house prices have absolutely responded to changes in interest rates in a way they haven't previously and a way that shares always have. And so when rates, interest rates go down, um, we know house prices have gone through the roof, right? And it kind of makes some degree of sense that a, you know, a cheaper rate means a lower return. Shares do the same thing. In the past, I might have said, look, there are different cycles or you know, property might move differently to shares or there's reason, you know, share, the share market might be tough because people might just go off, you know, financial assets. Those arguments I might have made 15, 20 years ago, maybe even maybe even five years ago, Doc, actually. Um, now I've got to say, shares and property seem so similar in the way that they're being treated by investors that it, I feel like that, that difference has kind of been lost a little bit. So i got to say, I'm not... I'm not, and look, I'm not, I'm, I mean, we're both shares, guys, mate. I, I confess I've absolutely thought about myself about should I buy an investment property. For me, the benefit's been, is there, you know, is there reason to do it because of the inherent leverage you get? If you borrow 90, 95% of the property price, even 80% of the property price, you're getting five to one leverage. Where you, you, know, you don't necessarily get in shares and we desperately wouldn't want people to take any sort of leverage with, with um, investing with marginal owned shares. So there is, there is some value of you know, being able to leverage your return in dollar terms. We put down 100 grand on a million dollar property. If the property goes up by, you know, $200,000, 20%, you actually triple your money or at least your down payment. Now, you've got to pay interest and stuff. It's not that simple. But I get why people might think about it. I've certainly thought about it from that perspective before. I, I wouldn't personally buy residential property for diversification benefits. I don't think it's necessary. I think you can do, be diversified enough across industries with companies. Um, it is possible at some future time, asset classes move differently. And so, for volatility protection, and again, Doc, your it depends answer was the right one at the beginning. You, you, you know, you can make an argument that if, if housing was going to be less volatile or move differently to property, and you as an investor wanted less volatility in your portfolio, I could make an I could make an argument for saying, well, lots of different asset classes to minimise volatility, but then you're back to bonds and gold and cash and all sorts of stuff. Um, I also don't necessarily think property is going to give you a great return from here. I have to say, because of where the prices have gone over the last few years, so. Uh, strikes me as unlikely given the really, really low rental yield you're getting in most capital cities, the really inflated prices based on rates being low. Now, could they go lower? I guess. They could go negative. They could stay low forever. There are circumstances in which prices keep going up, but there are also circumstances in which prices stagnate or fall. And I think that's... Companies can profit growth in a way that yield can't really grow because it really is fixed to, at least in some basic way, the repayments are are, are kind of a function of income. Uh, Company profits aren't that. You know, you just don't you don't have um, profitability linked to, particularly for for small and medium companies that are growing, disrupting, taking share. Um, they have the ability to grow meaningfully larger. Now, there are some individual investment properties that may do that as well. You might get a, a super cheap investment property or one that has rezoning potential. Or there's there's you know there might be individual properties where you can make it work. And so, I'm actually kind of a little bit reluctant to talk about whole asset classes. The same as we wouldn't say any share is okay. You know, when we say buy shares over a property, I'm not saying buy buy crappy companies. Equally, there might be some great investment properties. That, that are you know better than the average. Uh, and so there are going to be differences, but I wouldn't do it for diversification personally, no. Um, other than maybe that use of leverage if you wanted to. And again, that's even I'd put a, a, a big, big question mark on that because of where prices are at the moment. REITs on residential property, there's some developers and bits and pieces I, I don't have any I would recommend. So that'd be my answer. Any more on that, Doc, before I move on? 
Just, just you know, you know, you, so you gave a very good example of how the leverage works on the upside. Can you explain? Maybe it's it was illustrating <laughs> exactly. No, the leverage, the leverage right, on the downside, right. right? So let's say the property right. price. You know, you buy at a million dollars, you <laughs> put in a uh, hundred thousand, yep. and now you have to sell at nine hundred. Mm-hmm. What happens? Correct. You wipe that entirely. Spot on. Yeah. Yep. That's, and that, that, I kind of meant to allude to that with the um, the fact that I don't think house prices, you know, are likely to keep going up. If they yeah. do, not by much. But you're right, they absolutely could go down. And if and when they go down, the leverage wipes you out. Now, if you're a long-term investor, like with shares, you might be able to write it out. But, gee, starting back from zero again is a tough <laughs> tough ask, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because of the leverage, right? I mean, a 10% yeah, totally. yeah, uh, pullback is not a lot, right? But 10% Correct. pullback actually yeah, wipes yeah, right. out, wipes up your entire, effectively, your, your capital. Correct, correct. And look, banks aren't likely to call on that. But, gee, if you... Because of a situation where you borrowed a lot, lost your job, or something else happened, that's, that's the other problem, mate. And you kind of alluded to this in, in your kind of you know, concentration point. Chances are, if property prices fall, it's going to be at the time when unemployment's higher. And so you're kind of taking the, the chances that not only might property prices fall, but if they, if and when they do, and you're out of work for some reason because you're linked to that economic, you know, collapse or, or recession or something, then not only are you going to have a property price fall, you may well have less income. You may be forced to sell in exactly that wrong market. And so to your point about the losses, you actually may have to crystallize that loss, which would be a, a horrible waste of all the money you've potentially built up to, to save and invest. All right, let's go to a question from Sam, mate. Uh, he's got a question for the podcast, he says. First name, Sam, basis only, please. So, okay, Sam basis. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Sam's question. I have a question for the, po- for the good captain and doc. I'm a long-time listener to the podcast and thank you immensely for the educational service that you provide, for free even, he says. Exactly, Sam, exactly. As many, I do not feel comfortable when selling shares. So I was wondering if you do mind sharing some insights on your mindset when changing a recommendation for, on your services from buy to sell. I love this question. Feel free not to use the following example, and I understand if you speak more generally, but it would be great if you can use the case of BWX. And so we will, Sam. BWX was a buy from one of your services. I don't know of both, he says, based on the growth profile it was showing a few years back. And after some... Uh, he uses the word dodgy. I wouldn't and I, I won't because I don't want to get myself in trouble. After some occurrences, including a CEO trying to buy out the business, some questionable accounting practices, the share price dropped significantly and your service changed the recommendation to sell. In the last two or three years, it has recovered from about $1.80 to almost $5 with a share purchase plan in the meanwhile, he says. My question is, what motivated the sell decision at the time when it was already quite low and in case you've looked at it afterwards, why not re-rate it to buy? He says, personal disclaimer, I did buy some shares of BWX on the way down after some, not all, skeletons had been discovered. And although happy with some of the recent recoveries, I don't endorse the current valuation. I'm definitely thinking of getting some or all of the profit out, but I'm hesitating. Any words of wisdom? Grateful Sam. I love the question, Doc. I think it's a really nice way to kind of frame up the way we do make some of these decisions, some of the impact on our on our services, um, we've both looked at BWX in the past. Your thoughts on on the kind of story, and then maybe specifically, and then more generally, what motivates you to move something to sell? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, uh, Sam, thanks for rubbing it in. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so while Scott was smart enough to not sell it, I was uh, dumb, maybe dumb enough to sell it uh, and crystallize the loss. Uh, thanks for rubbing it in. Also, thanks for pointing Laziness out that... looks like smartness a lot, mate, can I tell uh, you? I, 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 and, would, and I wouldn't claim th- too much credit. <laughs> and, and thanks also for pointing out that he held, he himself held the shares. <laughs> well, 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 the so-called, exactly, that's right. well, so-called the professional stock pickers basically said so. Um, uh, so uh, I think the, the blame entirely lies on my head. Uh, what can I say? So, because you, uh, you got people to blame for this stuff, don't you? Well, you got I'm team members. Take, Come on, dude. I've got somebody. 
Uh, there's an answer. Blame, there's an answer. Yeah, just, 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 I'll just blame it on you. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> so, so just, be, just because you didn't sell, I thought I should sell, and I'll look smart, but I'm clearly not looking smart. So, um, yeah, okay. With those, with those, you know, we try to make light of this. We actually don't take these things lightly. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here's here's what happened. So I think at that time, so I was just looking actually what what, what uh, we said. Um, there was uh, there was a series of downgrades um, in operating yeah. profit around that time. The company was going; they had bought a bunch of things in the U.S. Uh, there was some issues with you know, and the whole thesis was you buy this brand which you give uh, in the U.S., which a expands your portfolio, but also gives you distribution rights. Um, um, it gives you distribution rights into various things. Yeah. And uh, and and because it gives you distribution rights into various things, it uh, expands. You know, your your, your sales mm-hmm. should actually effectively grow. And the whole th- thesis was around Sukin. So uh, basically, the thesis was falling apart, which was kind of the reason yeah. uh, we sold. The reason to hold on could have been uh, <laughs> that the shares were. I mean, if they could meet the lower end of their guidance and things like that, then it you know mm-hmm. it was it would look like a turnaround. Now. Um, it looks like things are turning around, at least based on the share, but I haven't actually looked at the business recently. And um, yeah, so that was thesis. And the other thing is that most of the time things don't turn around. And yes. while and and while we generally tend to be, uh, I tend to be patient. Uh, if there's a number of downgrades and in a number of other things that are going on, you know, um, management changes, thesis changes, uh, guidance changes, then it just sort of feels like there was a there was I think a management driven buyout attempt which failed. It was, yeah. A lot of things that happened that just basically you know drains you. At some point, you basically say, "Well, you know, your capital is probably invested elsewhere. Uh, is better invested elsewhere, and you sell." Now it could it looks like we just pretty much must have picked the bottom of bottom of whatever was possible to be picking the bottom, and um, you know. So and such things do happen, you know. You're gonna sometimes, you know, sometimes things do turn around somewhat. And I haven't looked at the results totally. recently to say what what's going on here, that uh, to have a view on the company currently. So so that's that. I will echo what Scott just said that in general, it is significantly difficult to get, you know. So I think you know it's difficult to get these all of these decisions right exactly as it is difficult to get all your buy decisions right. So. Mm. Being patient actually sometimes is a good thing. You know what you don't want to do is you know when things are down, you don't want to. Things are down is not the share price, but you know, the business is really not executing, is having a lot of difficulties. It's best to not. Uh, it's definitely not a good idea at that point to double down. Yeah. But probably <laughs> there's some argument to actually hold on to positions just because you know. It, and the thesis, and the reason for holding on to positions, if you think about it in absolute dollar terms, what would happen is, let's say you invested like you know five thousand dollars into BWX, and as an example, if the share price is is down seventy percent, then you've already lost thirty five hundred. Yeah. So you've got a very small position at that point, which whether or not you sell or you just keep it makes really very little difference at that point, mm-hmm. right? So you could just keep it and then hope, you know, things, you know, may work out. And as in this case, they worked out, you'd have recovered your money back, um, right? So it's really hard to make an apple apple or, or comparison, but yeah, uh, because you could have sold at 1500 and then invested, say, in Afterpay or something like that, and you've got a 10 bag on that. So therefore, there's always, a, there's an opportunity cost, 
but there's also the cost of making those decisions. So that's, yeah. So in general, I would say I would agree with Scott that being patient is useful, but without doubling down. Um, and why haven't we looked at it? Well, there are other things that, you know, other businesses that have been executing or there are better opportunities that, um, you know, have been worthwhile to consider. So that's why we've not looked at it again. It's not that, you know, here's the thing. The other thing is, for me, at least the thesis uh, was always about Sukin and Sukin going global, not the other way around. And that thesis to me seemed like it really hasn't worked out. Um, and, and there was a point in time when Sukin was really growing really well because, were, and, and the other thing to realize with these sort of, you know, uh, pharmaceutical channel driven sales is that it's basically a function of self space, right? So if you sign yep. a deal with Chemist Warehouse, and Chemist Warehouse basically devotes a shelf to it, you're going to get a huge bump. But then that bump is going to normalize at some point because there's only so many Australians buying stuff, right? So, so there's that to realize. So therefore, the, you know, the international was a big deal of the story, for me at least, if it had to be a huge multi-bagger from where we had recommended it. Um, you know, and I just thought that it's probably not going to get there at that point. But that, that's, you know, but yeah, except. Uh, you know, with the full benefit of hindsight, it looks like, you know, probably you could have held on and, and been okay. I, I don't know whether at from that point it would be actually, you know, it probably is a market beater from that point of the sell, right? I mean, if you if you sold at like $1.80 and now it's like $5 something, that's definitely a market beater from that point. So in that, in, with the full benefit of hindsight, definitely looks like a wrong decision. I think that's, I think that's a really good summary, Doc. I think what I probably... I, I'm actually on your side of this one. I, you know, we held on at Share Advisor, no, MDP, both, both, um, because we thought that the turnaround might happen. But I got to say, I, <laughs> I'll give you an example. So here's another turnaround. I sent you uh, the media, the media business, originally known as Media Monitors, right? <clears throat> In October 2016, this was a four dollar stock, and it had some really, really crappy news and fell to a dollar forty six in 2017. So I was really smart. I thought, you know what, it's going to bounce back, and it did. It went from $1.46 to about $2.24. So I'm a genius. Unfortunately, a year later, it was $1.05. <laughs> and then that was, uh, that was uh, end of November 2017. Um, then by the same period a year later, it was down to $0.25. Cents, and it's now $0.10. Cents. <laughs> so to Doc's point, um, for every, every turn that you look, makes you look smart, uh, there's another one that makes you look stupid. <laughs> and Accenture is mine. We are down, I think, 90% on Accenture at the moment, maybe even more, actually. Um, it has been an absolute debacle, a disaster of a stock pick. And so Doc's point about turnarounds not always turning is a really, really important one. It's a really, really valid one. And I think in this case, you know, I, I happen to be lucky enough to get this one right. Doc was unlucky enough to get this one wrong. Um, in a different set of circumstances, in another 100 universes, it's exactly the other way around, right? I'm, I'm the idiot looking at BWX at 10 cents saying, I really should have sold that one. And Doc's like, well, yeah, I did the right thing. I sold $1.80. Look, look how much money I saved our members. Um, that, that's a really, really important point to make. And I think Doc's last point about, you know, there's many other ideas. I think that's the key one. Um, you asked why not re-rate it to buy. I guess we could. The, the, the challenges you mentioned yourself, and I've got to say, I've looked at this multiple times, Sam, as a downgrade candidate. We haven't done it, but um, as the share price recovers, frankly, it's kind of always seemed, if not expensive, at least the market's pricing a lot of upside already. And so at any one of those points, rather than upgrading to buy, as the price was $1.80, it looked like, okay, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. 50-50 call, maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. When it gets 250 then 3 then 4 then 5 uh, as you say yourself, 
I'm looking at that going, well, you know, are we, are, we, are we buying it now because it's just going up? In which case, and we said this on Friday, there'd be a terrible reason to buy anything. Uh, equally terrible reason to sell just because it's falling. Um, but, you know, realistically, the, the, a lot of kind of, oh, good, it's recovered is already in the price. And I don't know there was a really great opportunity to genuinely look at that and say, this is our best idea. I didn't re-recommend it in my services. So even though we didn't sell it, I, we do a, a new recommendation every single month. And some of those are what we call re-recommendations. They are, you know, recommendations to members to buy more of a company we already own. I didn't do that any, at any point on the way up because I didn't want to increase our exposure to it, as Doc's already said, um, because it just, you know, the, the price was rising. That was lovely, happy with that. But it was never exactly super cheap as it was on the way up, and it's still not super cheap on the way up. So um, I think there's, you know, sometimes the question is better asked, what is my best idea? And Doc's already made this point. I'm just re-emphasizing re- it. The better question might be, what's our best idea right now, rather than should I buy BWX again? Because even if, even if it does go up, even if it goes up from here, am I sure that with all the investable universe of 1800-odd ASX companies, for example, is this my single best idea right now? Um, rarely is that going to be the case. And I think that's why neither I nor Doc has re-recommended it, and Doc hasn't added it back, because it's, it's never been one of those stocks where you're going to go, obviously this is going to go well. And so I think that's, that's probably you know, the key one here. You, you asked about, just to kind of come back to the top of your question, um, Sam, and I might let you jump back in, Doc, if you want, or if you don't, that's cool too. You know, some of the insights on the mindset were changing a recommendation. I'm, I'm much slower to sell than Doc is, as a matter of course. But I'm also not looking for the same degree of raw upside that Doc is. And so there's a very, there's very different kind of um, calculus, I think, and I, I don't want to speak for you, Doc, but if I think about how I compare the two styles and services, I'm not looking for the same absolute raw upside. And so quite honestly, you know, a turnaround's never really going to be in Doc's wheelhouse of like, hey, maybe this goes back to something like what it used to be, um, even, though the, even though the thesis is clearly not that multi-bay, high, high, high potential, you know, um, return from here. If it's like, well, okay, now it's cheap, it might come back to its previous price, that's a, that's a turnaround slash kind of value kind of investment play. Um, and I'm not a super value investor, but I'm more value than Doc, and Doc's more growth than me, and that's cool. Um, but it makes perfect sense that in the, in the, in the, the way he invests, the way I invest, we would approach them differently. Now, again, as I said, maybe I should, if I'd sold both Essentia and BWX, I'd probably still be behind, actually. So I'd probably, probably best that I've held them both. Um, but, you know, it does go to show that even if you think, you know, you're waiting for a turnaround to happen, it can go really, really badly. I'll give you a, a, an even better example, an even, even worse example for me, Doc. And that was we at Million Dollar Portfolio sold a company called Afterpay Touch. You might, have, you might know it now. It's just Afterpay. And we, the reason was we had originally recommended Touch Corp the old business before Afterpay was effectively reverse merged into it. And the business changed. And it went from being a provider of tech services to point of sale providers, which was the old Touch Corp business, to this weird thing, some, they were gonna try somehow to get people to buy now, pay later, who the hell's gonna do that, right? And so obviously in hindsight, it was a stupid sell. But at the time we looked and went, okay, as Doc said, the thesis had changed. We didn't buy Afterpay, we bought Touch Corp. And I looked at it and went, okay, well, Am I going to hold it just because I've already got it, even if it changed? If Woolies started going into, I don't know, mining, would I hold it just because I originally bought Woolworths? I shouldn't, no. Now, if I look at it and go, I love this mining business, I'm happy to hold it, that's great. And again, I, you know, hindsight says I should have realized the value of buying out pay later much earlier. Doc was much smarter than me on that one. So it's kind of one of those, those stories. You know, the thesis changed, so we sold. And I don't, I, I regret missing out on the opportunity for us and our members on that one, but I don't regret the, the, the process that I went through to make the decision to sell. I just simply didn't have enough confidence in the new new idea and I it was different to the old idea. There was no reason to hold it other than I already did. And that's almost the very worst reason to hold a stock. Now, again, I said I should have been smart enough to work it out in the first place and realise that the afterpay business was going to be something and I could have at any point 
as you rightly say, Sam, just bought it at some point. I could have said, oh, we sold Afterpay Touch, but I'll buy Afterpay back. I could have, should have, and I didn't. Unfortunately, I can't say I would have, but I could have and should have um, and, and didn't. And that's, that's absolutely my, my mistake as well. Last point for me, Doc, is just that we're going to make many, many more mistakes, right? Sam, this is, this is a game of, uh, of odds and probabilities, and we're going to try and be right as often as we can and get enough upside as much as we can. And the two combinations of those, the average gain and the chance of success, multiply those together. And if that's greater than the market return, we've done a good job. And so we, I'm going to have a million, podca- uh, million touch uh, afterpays and a million iCentures. Hopefully I have a few BWXs as well. Um, and Doc will have the reverse. He, he's got a few BWXs and a few afterpays. In his case, that's worked out the other way. I mean, you know, selling BWX and buying afterpay was a spectacular trade if you'd made that trade. So that, that's just kind of some of the ways I, I think about the question. It's a really great one, mate. I like it a lot. Anything yeah. else on that from you, Doc? No, I think you've summarized it beautifully, so there's nothing for me to add. When you say summarize beautifully, you mean I talk too long, and you're absolutely right. Let's move to a question from Isam. Hello, Doc and Scott. My name is Isam, and you guys are doing a fantastic job. Thank you. I've been listening to your podcast for a year now, and it became an addiction ever since. Awesome. I have a question for Doc. Doc. Uh, Isam hasn't been listening long enough, Doc. He knows I'm not going to ask <laughs> questions from... Uh, <laughs> Just, just for people like, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I have a question for Doc about the Schwab International Brokerage account. I'm currently with Stake and I have six figures invested. Nice work, Sam. However, they only offer a custodian account. In the event they go bust, I fear I might lose some of my investments. Does Schwab offer full ownership or is it a custodian type two? What is the cheapest way to transfer AUD to USD in Schwab? Can I use TransferWise to add funds? <laughs> I tried to do my own research, wasn't very successful. I love the idea of zero brokerage fees, and since Robinhood isn't available here yet, Robinhood that is, I wanted to switch to a more reputable broker. P.S. I only have one criticism. You need to upgrade the audio quality. And a little bit of a smile and a laugh there. We are trying desperately, Sam. Thank you for raising that. And for those of you who have kept stayed with us as we've tried to fix stuff, we are desperately trying, I promise you. We've been through half a dozen microphones. We've tried Zoom and all sorts of stuff. So we are doing our best. Anyway, Sam says, thanks for your time and effort. Full on, Sam. Okay, Doc, let's go with these in order. Does uh-huh. Schwab offer full ownership of the stocks or like stake, is it a custodian account too? No, so it's all, everything is custodian sort of arrangement, right? So everything, the, the shares are held in a trust account in for you, but they're actually held in street name. That's the yep. normal way in which the, the entire, basically the US market works. Uh, there is no chess like system or, you know, there's no unique, uh, you know, that share belongs to you mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that's uh, yeah. So there's no difference in that from that point of view from between, I guess, Schwab and Stick. Nice, thank you, mate. Uh, question number two was: What is the cheapest way to transfer Australian dollars to US dollars using Schwab? And can I use TransferWise to add funds? He asks. Okay, so cut many different ways. Uh, so if you have a Schwab account, Schwab actually allows you. Schwab has got an account somewhere here in Australia in which will take Australian dollars and then they would convert it, I think, on the overnight rate, I think very close to wholesale rate, and then that money should show up in your U.S. account. That's one option number one. Schwab would also be very happy to take U.S. dollars if you want to send them U.S. dollars, and I've done that a few times, and I've used OzForex, a local Australian company, local Australian global company that does, uh, you know, basically money transfers. And you can send money to Schwab, uh, Schwab's account in New York using, and that's almost 
it, that's, that can happen overnight as well. So if you do it in the morning, it'll, it'll show up overnight. Uh, and Forex has always given very competitive rates. I don't know anything about transfer-wise, but maybe it is like Forex. Um, one could, I have never tried out, so I have no opinion. Or I, I use, I've used Forex a number of times for sending money across different places, you know, to friends or relatives, or you know, borrowed someone from money from somebody. You want to return some funds. Uh, it works really, really well. Um, so I can vouch for that. At least in my experience, it's been really good. Um, what else? Yeah. So those. Yeah. So Schwab has multiple ways in which you can transfer funds to them. I am not a stake user, so I don't know how many different ways. I think stake allows you to also do USD transfers, but then I think it charges you a flat fee of some number of dollars uh, because then they don't make the money off the foreign exchange transaction, so they charge you a flat fee for that. But I think maybe depending on how much you're transferring, it, that might be a better, cheaper way than actually giving a cut. Uh, some number of basis points cut on the tra- uh, on 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 converting AUD to USD. So it depends on, yeah, what what you want to do. Nice one, mate. Thank you very much. Good answer. Um, I, I, in my experience, it's been super easy to use Schwab to transfer cash. By the way, as you've said to me, I think you might have said a couple of weeks ago, it's just it's super easy. Um, all right, let's go to a question from Sebastian Dock. I like this one because we haven't talked about this for ages. Uh, about a year ago, Vanguard talked about the fact it was going to try and start a super fund here in Australia. And it kind of went quiet, although in the last couple of months they've been talking about the fact they've been uh, basically knocking back or, or returning mandates to manage other people's money inside other super funds to remove a conflict of interest, to ready itself for launch. There was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, I assume The Age, uh, two days ago from, from Charlotte Grieve, and, and I'll just read the, the top uh, couple of sentences. It says, a new superannuation product by US investment giant Vanguard that could shake the $3 trillion industry on its foundations is inching closer to launch. Structured much like an industry super fund, the $7 trillion fund manager aims to have its highly disruptive product in the market by the end of the year. However, industry sources say it could be sooner. Like industry funds, the article says, Vanguard likes to refer to itself as a non-profit. It is. It's owned by its clients and emerged from Pennsylvania in 1975 out of a determination to maximise value for them, not shareholders, by providing cheap access to stocks. Um, and a bit further on, it says, um, let me get to this point. Vanguard had planned to launch its new product by the end of the year, but sources claim it could be available in air quotes within the next few months. Uh, and the quote from Vanguard, our aim is to launch a plan that combines simplicity, transparency, and smart investment to deliver low cost, high quality super that can move with members right through life. Which sound, sounds like a good idea. Uh, Sebastian says, hi, Scott. I'd love to hear your and Doc's thoughts on this on the podcast. It sounds great so far with the available details. Sebastian. Doc, we don't know much. What if you give some early thoughts, if you have any, on, on the move by Vanguard to enter Australia's superannuation sector? Yeah, I think, well, again, there's lack of information right now, right? We don't know exactly what... The only thing we can say based on Vanguard's history is that, you know, it will be a very low fee... Uh, way of uh, investing your super money, which is, I think, superb. So, you know, paying less in fees, and that's what uh, Vanguard is known for. <laughs> and, um, you know, the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, when a $7 trillion um, company moves into, into potentially yeah. trillions of dollars of industry, yeah, it can actually move the dial yeah. because it has got the scale to move the dial. So, that, so overall, it could make industry super very competitive and you know we can see some interesting products come from so that i'll be interested in seeing what they do 
Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, Sebastian, it's hard right now for us to really have a good view on what to say about it. We don't yet know. Vanguard is known, by the way, as, a, as an index fund provider, but it has also got active funds and active strategies. So it's really, I mean, it's, it's impossible for us to know just yet what they might offer and what it might look like. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a Doc's approach here and say, look, I, I love they're doing it. I'm a massive Vanguard fan, uh, both in terms of what it's done for individual investors. I think Warren Buffett has said that Jack Bogle, who started Vanguard, has probably done more for investors than anyone ever. Uh, which is saying something from Buffett when you think about it, he learned from his mentor, Ben Graham, and other people who kind of gave us the codification for how to think about share prices and uh, future earnings and, and some of the a- academics who've, who've kind of defined the genre, um, to use a movie term. They, uh, you know, Bogle has saved a fortune for a whole lot of people, probably made more impact than most. I love the fact they're coming. I love the fact they'll be, a, as Docs is a credible player. I hope they get to scale. Um, the article actually goes on to, to raise the issue that I think is the biggest one, which is, it's really hard to get to people's super accounts. And I don't mean that get to in a bad way, but because most of us open super when we get when we start with a new employer, uh, we join, we go to an employer and say, hey, you know, can we, uh, so, you know, can we start with the company? They say, yep, here's the forms and here's our default super fund. And so you kind of fill that form out. And maybe at some point you change funds when you change to a new employer. Maybe a few people change to a low cost industry fund, which I recommend uh, doing. And they do it off their own volition, which is great. But Vanguard's biggest challenge is going to be to actually get those people to join the, the super fund in the in the meantime. Depending on, I, I'm super interested myself, I've got to say, depending on what they offer. Uh, they may offer a direct investment option inside Vanguard, which would be fantastic. I've got a self-managed super fund right now, but if, if Vanguard can replicate what I currently do, I will be there in a heartbeat if it saves me the hassle and drama of everything else. But whether it can, um, given the complexity of super is, is an open question. So I'd be super keen. I'll be watching closely. Uh, I will actively consider it because I, I do like Vanguard as a business, uh, but it remains to be seen whether they can make a dent. I desperately hope they can, or at least cause improvement in the industry more broadly, as Doc says. Throwing their weight around would be enough for Australian investors, and that'd be a great result if that's all I end up doing over the next couple of years. Any more on that, mate? I have nothing to add, sir. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Patrick. I like this one. Discord and Nirban, still loving the podcast and thanks for your recent additional podcast recommendations. On a side note, you both have great voices for podcasts, which is, of course, a plus on this medium. It's very kind. I think what he's saying is we don't have heads for TV, mate, I think is what he's saying. <laughs> but we'll see. Anyway, he says, there is one nagging question I have. You have both discussed the value of shares and making predictions about stock price movements, which I highly value. However, I still don't know how to gauge the actual share price at a particular point in time, and therefore whether the share is over or underpriced by the market. As you mentioned, you're trying to find shares that will beat the market, but doesn't that mean you're able to ascertain the correct price for a share at a particular point in time? Thanks for advance and keep up the great work. And that's from Patrick. I love this question, Doc, because I've struggled with this early in my investing career. I imagine you have, most people do. Um, you know, it's fine to say I don't know what the shares are worth, or, or we only approximate it. But it's like, okay, well, you have to know that. And if you if you are if you are beating the market by definition, you're doing something right by buying the shares cheap enough. So how are you working out if they're cheap enough? Um, he's kind of reversed the reversed the formula, inverted the question, which I love. Um, and he's right. If we're able to beat the market, then by definition, more often than not, we are buying shares at cheaper than they're worth. So how can we do that? <laughs> and why can't we tell him how to do that, Doc? Yeah, so uh, that's a very good question. Look, so for some businesses, it's relatively straightforward to actually assess what the value, what correct values under certain assumptions, right? Of course, there are all assumptions. It's um, you can look at a bank share, 
and you can look at sort of how the economy, for example, uh, is is moving, and sort of get, make guess guess estimates, pretty reasonably good guess estimates as to what they should be priced at. The uh, same thing. I mean, you know, you're looking at any growth business, let's say, uh, and you can make some assumptions about how it's going to grow, and you can sort of think out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out, and say, well, you know, what's our margin profile? Should it have what? You know, like the one of the simple things I try to do is I think five and then maybe 10 years out, what does the business, what can the business potential look like? And maybe in a few different scenarios for how it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And under those scenarios, what sort of revenues it can have and what sort of earnings, just operating earnings it could have. So basically, I'm just trying to think about revenues and uh, looking at today's gross margins and uh, operating margins and think about what the operating margin or the gross margin is going to look like, um, you know in the future and of course there's going to be a range of potential outcomes there but you know you sort of look at that and sort of try to guess and it's all a guess because this it's it's a guess because you are fundamentally working with the future with the and the future is fundamentally unknown right mm-hmm. and so therefore you, you know you can have your best model your model you could try, fine-tune a model as much as you want to. but 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 again like at the at the at least for me if things are growing and they can be much, much larger than they are today, that's a good starting point. And that gives you sort of an idea. And then the other thing people forget is if something is growing at 50%, right? 50, you know, then it's doubling every one and a half years, roughly, right? If it's growing at 30%, that's still, you know, doubling every roughly two years or so two and a half years. That's a lot of compounding if you can allow enough time and if, if the business can do that. And then the revenue base out 10 years is going to look substantially larger. It gives you, then you can discount that and you can sort of, you know, guess what the price should be at that point. And then you can sort of look at today's price and say, well, is it a good, you know, is, is it a good return? And that, that's basically one way to invest. And that's basically what I do. So I'm not really trying to ascertain what the price should be today. <laughs> I'm basically trying to actually ascertain what the price is likely to be in a decade. And, you know, and I'm basically then saying I'm going to take enough number of similar type of bets that on average, if I work out, if it works out, it's going to be working out really well. So that's sort of my approach to, yeah. So I'm not really trying to ascertain value today and I'm actually doing it the reverse. I'm trying to go out <laughs> into the future. Yeah, and, and implicit kind of in your, in, your, um, in your view is just that the market's undervaluing the compound growth, right? Like at, at, at some level... Because you know it's possible that even if you got that growth in the future, um, the shares would still be priced highly enough that even with that growth, you're still not going to make make a market beating return. So implicit in your kind of calculus is there is a you know, and we know this to be true by the way. You're not you're not you're not uh, taking speculative guesses here. The market is is terrible at valuing long term high levels of compound growth. That's right. Yeah. So so basically, one of the the couple two or three different things happen. Whenever somebody models something, they're looking at, you know, they'll probably explicitly model, say, first five years and then basically ramp down the growth rate from five to 10 and then basically assume a, 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 a terminal growth rate of, say, 3% or 4% onwards forever. <laughs> the problem with that sort of assumption is that for, for, the, for really the best businesses, that turns out to be really wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. So, you, you know, you, if you put, built that model for Amazon, it would be horribly wrong because Amazon today at its mm-hmm. you know multi-billion dollars of scale is still growing <laughs> at 30 percent plus so so that's then so I think fundamentally there's that bet that uh, that for some businesses people are just not giving it that is as you said that the the benefit that they're going to compound at a significant rate the other thing that I think happens is 
it's a tendency of us to think that, well, you know, if somebody's doing something today, they're going to be caught up tomorrow or in five years' time because other people are going to be doing the same thing. And that's true, right? Because if you, if you think about, say, smartphones, mm. everybody can make a smartphone today. But that hasn't right. changed the amount of money Apple can get from iPhones. Right, right. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, A, you can always have product differentiation. Mm. B, you can have other ways in which you create differentiation. And C... <laughs> Fundamentally, if, you, if you're investing in a company that can never innovate, then you've got a problem. But if you're going to co- investing in a company that can innovate, it's always going to actually do something else. So, you know, when the iPhone was there, there was no iPod. Or no, sorry, you know, when the iPod was there, there was no iPhone. And when the iPhone was there, there was no iPad. When the iPad was there, there was no Apple Watch. So fundamentally, you're also betting on people innovating and doing new things, right? And at some point, that's not going to work out. Right, but almost everything in in business, there's like a life cycle, right? You know, companies are born, then some companies die, some companies, you know, stay in mediocrity. There are a few companies that are going to actually be great. They're going to be great for a long time, and then they're going to get into mediocrity, and then they're going to get into oblivion, and and that that's sort of the life cycle, right? So you you know, I'm sort of betting on that early stage of that life cycle, saying if I can find enough number of companies that you know have the potential to be great, then then it should be okay because, you know, uh, the, I think the linear thinking really hurts. Um, yeah. You know, people just don't make it. Now, I will say a couple of things here. The market has gotten better at assessing growth. Uh, and number two is a lot of companies are now deciding to stay private for longer. Yeah. That actually reduces the amount of potential that you have for growth. And, Number three, I think I'll say is that if you want to find those really disruptive growth opportunities, you have to sort of look at those sectors that haven't been totally disrupted, mm. right? So, uh, right. And then, and then you have to fundamentally also believe that, if you, for example, investing in software, you have to believe that software disruption mm-hmm. is still misunderstood, right? So there are multiple ways in, in which I think you, you, know, you have to sort of believe that the pace of disruption is going to further increase. So mm. things like that. I know that's a roundabout, like that very, very convoluted answer. No, it's a, it's a good answer. I think, that, I think that's, you know, it, it is, I mean, as stock pickers, our job is to find where we think the market's wrong and, and back that in with money and, and hope we're right. <laughs> that's kind of, which sounds obvious, right? But to your point, that, that's, you know, the detail the, the you've given is exactly how you go about doing exactly that. Um, and it isn't, you know, there is no, there is no 30 second elevator pitch answer because if there was everyone to do it, everyone would know it and it goes away very quickly in that circumstance. And I've made the example before, but, you know, Warren Buffett's mentor, Ben Graham, used to just look at the accounting and find companies where the assets are worth more than the share price. Like, which, which, is, which is literally shooting fish in a barrel, right? Except as you say, that goes away pretty quickly when everyone else realizes it's possible and you got to move on to something else. And that's that's also true of the stock market. At some point, I fully expect that even, I won't say, I think you'll, you'll evolve, but you know the idea of assuming that companies will be undervalued for a long time will also go away, is my guess. When eventually everyone gets around to realizing it, factors it in. Now that could be still decades away, right? We've had, the, you know, the internet age has been around for, what can I say, 25 years? And the market's still not getting it, right? Amazon's still growing at 37% a year and people are still undervaluing the shares, in my view. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, there's that kind of, um, I own shares for the record. There's that, uh, there's that reality. Maybe it never gets around to it, but there's no reason why it couldn't at some point effectively arbitrage away that opportunity when it finally catches up. As you say, though, mate, right now it hasn't. I, I don't invest in hypergrowth the same way you do, as I've said many, many times. So to give you my, give my answer to the question, um, I, there's a couple of ways to do it. The first is, 
I still actually look out multiple years and I tend to to try and find businesses I think are going to be worth meaningfully more at that point but are being judged by the market as being worth less. Now, that sounds obvious, right, in some cases and also not very helpful. A um, couple, of, couple of easy examples recently. We recommended a company called Adairs uh, to members of Motley Fool Share Advisor and we did it because this is a really boring homewares company that sells stuff on retail, uh, you know, retail outlets, all that kind of stuff, growing about 4% a year. You go, oh man, is there anything more boring than that? Well, it turns out its online business is growing at 96% a year. Now, that was last year. And yes, that was, a, that was an amazing year, a remarkable year. It won't grow 96% ongoing. But what that gave us a sense of is there was a business there the market wasn't valuing. It was valuing the sleepy homewares retailers at 13 times sales, we are 13 times earnings, I should say, which you'd pay for kind of roughly zero growth. If it can do more than zero, it's going to do okay. If it can do a lot more than zero, it's going to do very, very well. So that was just a case of in five years' time, do we think it'd be meaningfully bigger? Yep. Uh, is the market you know, making the same assumption based on the current price? Nope. What does my kind of thing is going to happen here and what's the what's the likelihood of of better long-term growth? And I think I think it's, you know, if you can find that gap, that's kind of where I'm looking. So I'm not necessarily looking for, you know, multi-decade, multi-baggers that Doc is and that's, you know, um, that's a great way to invest and frankly, he's done very well doing it. Um, but, you know, I'm looking for those businesses. I look out five years. I own Treasury Wine Estates. I mentioned that on Friday. Um, again, I think the market is assuming things never improve. If they do, I think the shares are cheap. And so I'm making that, Bet if you like, and it is a bet. I mean, all, all investing is a bet, not to not to you know overly muddy the water between uh, gambling and investing. But I'm saying, okay, I think the market is wrong. I think this business goes back to some sort of normality, normality, and when it does, I think the shares are worth more. So it's kind of that process. I know that doesn't really give you a, a great answer. I understand the the need for a more concrete answer, a more concrete solution, uh, Patrick. I I wish I could give you something better. Um. I think what's 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 important here is just to finish my answer. We're not trying to value the current. We're not trying to measure the current value, if that makes sense. So I'm not trying to say the shares are right now worth X. I mean, I guess I'm some degree, um, but I'm more saying you know, for, in Treasury's case, for example, eleven dollars fifty or so for the shares. Um, I think the company can go back to a higher level of earnings, and if it does, that is eleven dollars fifty is too cheap for those future earnings. And so I'm not really even saying I think it's worth 18 or 15 or 20. I'm kind of just saying 11.50 looks cheap if, if the level of earnings I expect is going to be deliverable. And I think that's where Doc and I are actually pretty similar. We take a different approach, but we're kind of saying, look, the long-term value of this is much higher than the current market is expecting. How much is it really to the cent worth now? No idea. Do I think it's worth a lot more if the things play out the way we think? Yep, we do. Uh, and so it's kind of... My, my journey has absolutely been pulling myself out of the exact question you've asked, Patrick. I've said before, I had spreadsheets with 40 or 60 different ratios calculated. I did it all, and eventually one day I just looked and I went, uh, you know, the old, the old quote, right? Oh, the price of everything and the value of nothing. I done all these at ratios, and I went, so what is it actually telling me? <laughs> you know, cash conversion cycles and inventory ratios and quick ratios and capital ratios, like return on invested capital, return on incremental invested equity, and all these kind of things. And they, they're, not, they're not, not irrelevant, and they're not worthless, but they really are... Um, you know, you kind of look at it and just go, actually, it's a little bit simpler than that, probably. Now, we're wrong a lot. It's the last thing I'll say. We're wrong a lot, right? So um, my strike rate's about six out of 10. They're beating the market. That's 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 just what it is. And I'm okay with that because when I beat the market, uh, we, we beat the market by more than we lose to, lose by when we lose to the market. So as long as your average winner is better than your average loser, and as long as you get more of them, you're away. Now, that's not for everybody, but that's the way we do it and works really, really well. Any more on that, Doc, or I smash that one to death? I think you have hit it out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, I don't think so, but thank you for the kind, kind thoughts. Um, here's one from Scott, mate. He says, 
Hi, Scott and Doc. I love your work and I listen every week. Thank you, mate. I've got a question for the pod. What are your thoughts on Aussie tech, which is currently dropping in line or worse with big international tech? I've been following and buying a few companies which look very attractive. Apple and Altium and Newix are all trading huge discounts to previous highs with their PE ratios, PE ratios now looking in brackets semi, close brackets, reasonable. They're all profitable and high growth companies playing in high growth industries with market leading customers. Think international big tech names like Google, Tesla, Microsoft, etc. Keen to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work. I'm handballing this one straight to you. You're the guru. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. Um, you mentioned we were talking about Big Tin Can the other day. Um, Aussie Tech. Can we, can we, you know, circle this group as one single group? Is it good enough to circle as a group? Do you have a view on the overall view of the market? How do you think about Aussie Tech generally, and also in the context of, of falls in the US market? Yeah, so like I think we can't put like I think we shouldn't be putting like things like Altium is a much larger company. You know, like we should. I don't. I wouldn't bracket them as, as one category. So Altium Zero is significantly larger than the big tin cans like companies are significantly smaller. Different right. different groups, uh, different things. I, I think each one has a different issue or arc that's affecting or I'm guessing affecting its share price. So right. the other thing I'll caution against is unless there is what I call secular growth, a pullback in share price. So, okay, mm. so let me backtrack a little bit further. In general, when the overall market sells off or an entire sector sells off because everybody feels like selling off, that's actually <laughs> a good time to look at buying stuff and picking things up. So I actually like the sentiment. However, you need to look at individual companies. So I think Altium has some issues in the short term. So Altium is a good company some issues on the short term in, in, and the, then one of the big issues right now is going to the cloud and sort of, you know, um, transitioning to the cloud. So it's much so One of the things that people don't realize, and this is relatively simple, one of the advantages of being a cloud sort of first company is it just makes things easier to try. It makes things easy to try. You can sort of increase the workload that you are, you know, running through. You can decide to cancel. It, you pay rate, you know, you pay over a period of, you know, you pay subscription mm. and not having that means selling is harder because you're trying to then make those big deals. Big deals are hard to do in a pandemic. Yeah. I think some of that Altium is facing right now. Uh, I'd also caution about, you know, Altium's PE is somewhere around 95. Okay, that will make Google look, <laughs> like Google look dirt cheap. So there's that. Uh, uh, again, I'm not, you know, it's a rel relative is relative. It doesn't mean that Google is cheap. Just in relative basis, Google is cheap. Um, so, so bear that in mind. So to answer the question, I think small cap has been beaten back a lot. Many small, some small caps have, uh, have company specific issues that are behind the falls. We have talked about Big Tin Can, which I think has no company-specific issue, but just, you know, it's just being bucketed with everything else. So Big Tin Can is an exception to the rule. Um, but that's what I'd say. Some of the large cap have had specific issues that have resulted in, in pullbacks. You have to sort of look through and past them. So, you know, for, for Altium, the question will be, how will the transition to the cloud go? And how does the business look post that? And how does, you know, sort of the business grow from there? They've just sold, you know, one of those, uh, one portion of the business that they had acquired a while back and things like that. So there's a bit of transition going on. So 
then comparing big tech, so our tech sector is really small compared to like global tech sector. Number one, uh, you have fewer companies to choose from uh, overall. So I think I would not compare them. Uh, but I would also say that with the exception for the larger tech companies, which are priced like global tech companies, or in, in you know, uh, I would say that the small cap tech is cheaper. But again, you know, one way to think about this is if you have a small cap that's growing. So, one of my favorite lines is what I really like. My favorite investment would be growth at scale. And by what that, I, uh, and what I mean by that is, I like to see billions of dollars of revenue growing at 30% plus because that's where you can really afford to go you know for market share gains and you can really build a sticky base if you're especially in sort of the enterprise software space right um, you know you you get into an enterprise's uh, nuts and bolts and you integrate your software and then you're going to be there for 10 years mm-hmm. 15 years 20 years you're going to make a lot of money growth of scale is really hard right i mean the best example of growth of scale i guess maybe is uh uh is zero but that's not enterprise software right that's actually selling to small small businesses right that's right, not right. exactly what i would call enterprise in that sense but yes they just so, um maybe uh Altium is the other example of enterprise software sales but it's not the scale of billions right that's the other thing mm-hmm. so so you have to realize that compare that with a small cap though here's on a relative basis, you have to realize that if I'm say, t- saying something like Bitinka, and let's say it has a run rate of you know, 70, 80 million uh, per year, that's growing at say 40%. That is different again. Realize that's mm-hmm. different from a billion dollars growing at 30%. Yeah. It's just, you, you, you can't just do it. You, you can't do the multiplication saying, oh, if that, if a billion dollar growing at 30% is selling at 30 times sales, I think mm-hmm. this should sell at 30 times sales. That said, whatever appropriate multiple you want to pick, you can still make an argument that small cap tech that is uh, growing at a decent pace is relatively speaking cheap, uh, right? But it should never be priced the same as big cap tech that is growing at a phenomenal. So it's, 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 there's yeah, a lot. Right. There's a lot of like I think there's a lot of nuance that you have to think through when you think about pricing, and I think it's very difficult again for that reason to just to direct compares. Like uh, my famous direct compare is Google is cheaper than Woolworths and it makes no sense to me, right? And, and I've <laughs> said that- cheaper on a PE basis, right? On a PE basis, whatever basis you want. Yeah. Like, I mean, on any number of basis, on a cash flow basis, or whatever basis right, we right. pick, Google but, but sorry, is- I just mean valuation rather than valuation, market yes. cap or, or price per share, yes. that's all. And, and we're not even talking about true value. I'm basically just saying Google is on yeah. a relative basis. So therefore, if people are, and Google has higher growth, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Woolworths, and therefore everybody in this world should be selling their, you know, in this, in this, what would I say, <laughs> right. in in this ideal world, everybody should be right. running to sell their Woolworths shares and buying Google, but that's not happening. <laughs> Why? Yeah, right. Because investors don't work that way, and investors who are invested in Woolworths are buying it for the franking and the yield and for whatever mm-hmm. else. And for them, maybe even Google is not even in their universe, right? This is not a type yeah. of company that they consider. Maybe they don't yeah. even invest outside uh, the ASX. So there's a lot of other nuance that comes into play in investing. Um, and I'm a firm believer that n- these nuances disappear if you take a really, really long horizon. Over time, 
there should be no market friction. There should be, right, right. Uh, you know, so over time things should normalize. If you can take a 50 year horizon, you can absolutely do what I do is I would not touch that one. I would touch this one because, it, you know, eventually the friction will disappear and therefore people will, will think of the whole world market as one market. That's what I do. I think of the entire market as one. But when you're looking at individual companies, I think you have to consider the nuance that comes into play uh, in, in valuation. Like it, mate. Really good answer. Um, can't improve on it, so I'm going to move on. Uh, go to question from where are we up to? Oh, don't use my name. I couldn't find the name. That's why. Please don't use my name. So I've already taken it off the off the question. If this gets onto the podcast, and it has, I just listened to the very special Sunday mailbag. I heard the question about Comsec brokerage, and I thought I would share my hack as someone who was also has a thousand dollars per month to invest. Comsec brokerage is ten dollars a month. Sorry, ten dollars a trade for trades of less than ten. Uh, for, sorry, start again. Comsec brokerage is ten dollars per trade for less than a thousand dollars worth of shares bought. So I'll buy as many shares as I can. That puts my total at just under a thousand dollars. I'd rather pay ten dollars brokerage for a nine hundred ninety nine dollar position than twenty dollars for a thousand and one dollar position. Fair enough. Hashtag Doc needs Insta. Hashtag Insta needs Doc. I like the like cool little hack, mate. If you're gonna, if there are those limits, those cutoffs, wise to know them, and you can pretty much halve what you otherwise might have paid in brokerage just by slightly sneaking it under that thousand dollar mark. So, not a bad little hack there. I think that's a great hack. I love those hacks. Question for another Scott. So I think the thing that's the third Scott we've had on the podcast. I promise it's not me, and I promise I'm not making it up. This is our last one for today, so let's uh, let's go to another Scott. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, are you just adding these questions up? Been, you know, you would you would reasonably think so. Quite honestly, there's that many Scotts. Yeah. It's actually it's actually a very reasonable assumption. Um, the high Scott he says, my wife and I have full time jobs, and we're currently paying off a mortgage, which has recently been refinanced at a lower interest rate. Well done. Hashtag get a better rate. We are aged 33 and 30 respectively and slowly growing our super with just employer contributions at the moment. I want to start investing in the share market and would like some advice on the best structure to invest inside. For example, company trust or SMSF. I understand that the SMSF is taxed at a lower tax rate of 15%. However, that is locked away until retirement. And I'm not really sure a novice should be playing around with their retirement funds. Secondly, what is the minimum you would start investing with? For example, do I put money aside in a separate account and then wait until I have X dollars and then start? Or do I just jump in with the minimum? Really interested to hear your feedback and eagerly awaiting your reply as we are, we're all beginners at one stage or another. Scott. Scott, you're absolutely right, mate. No question is a silly question or a dumb question. Um, if you're asking the question, assume there's a whole lot of people listening who want to know the same thing. So that's why we're always happy to hear really complex questions from some um, long-time investors and some really, really simple basic ones that seem... Uh, once you know it, a little more basic, when you're getting started are some of the really knotty questions. Uh, and you're right to get some questions or some, I won't say advice, we're not giving you personal advice, but you're right to ask questions about those sort of things like structure as you're starting. So you start on the right foot. Um, Doc, SMSF, company, trust, personal name, uh, pros and cons. We won't tell Scott what he and his wife should do though. Well done on getting started, mate. Uh, what do you reckon, what's, what are some of the pros and cons for some of those different structures? You know, like, I'm really hesitant to answer this question because, <laughs> like, like I mean, I think different people do different things. Um, we have a superannuation fund, but we use it for a completely different purpose. Uh, mm. Like, uh, I mean, you know, like, and again, you could invest. So I don't know what the what the right answer is. So I'm just going to, you know, uh, mothball it back to you so, <laughs> so that you can give the answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you very much, dude. Um, Remind me to get you later. All right, um, let me try and keep this reasonably brief, Scott. 
So here, let me go through the pros and cons. Personal name, super easy, super simple. You get the full benefit of the tank, uh, the franking credits. Um, there's not a lot of extra paperwork. There's no extra administration fees in the structure you might be looking at. If you've got a, a company or a trust or a, a super fund, there's admin fees and audit fees and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's super cheap, super easy, super simple, uh, maximum flexibility, and you get the use of the franking credit. They're the, they're the pros. The cons are you have to pay tax at your marginal tax rate, which can fluctuate if you're earning a lot of money. Um, there are other structures that are lower tax rate structures uh, or if you're not sure how much money you're going to earn and if you're, you know, imagine yourself at 55, um, by then maybe you're in a, you know, only half a million dollars working as CEO of some mining company somewhere um, and you're paying tax at, at 45 cents in the dollar, you're also going to have your investment income taxed at the same rate. So you are kind of locking yourself in, well, not locking, you can always change it, but you know what I mean. Um, the, the assets you buy are going to be taxed at your marginal rates. So you can't know what that is. Um, and it also doesn't really allow you much flexibility in terms of the way you, you stream the, the income. So there's that. Um, net, net, I have some shares in my personal name. I'm more than happy to do that uh, for other reasons I'll get to at the end. Trust and company are difficult ones. Um, you The impact on the capital gains tax uh, concessions are different. You don't have the same capital gains tax concessions as a company as you as an individual. You can't claim those 12-month discounts, so be careful with that one. Uh, it does cost you a lot of money to set up, as I said. The benefit is you can keep the money inside the company and only pay it out to the company's shareholders, i.e. you and your wife probably, um, at a time of your choosing. And so I can imagine a scenario where you take a two-year sabbatical from work and you pay yourself out income during those two years at a really tax-effective rate or you wait till you're retired and do it that way. Um, or you simply keep the money in there and compound it in there and never pay ta- personal income tax on it, only ever at the 30% rate. Again, assuming that that's the rate for uh, the long term. It may not be because the government can always change it. But assuming that you know that's the rate, if you are that mining exec on 45% and you're paying tax at 30 inside the company, you effectively shield some of that income from a higher tax rate until a time of your choosing. So that can be, that can be super useful. Uh, you can also retain profits, as I said, and pay it out of your choice. In a trust, you can stream the, the income to the members of the trust, the beneficiaries in the lingo, which again would probably be you and your wife. Uh, great idea, except you also have to do that. You don't have a choice on timing. Um, that gives you the choice of doing it. So if you're not working, your wife is, or she's not working, you are, you can stream income to her or to you. Uh, and again, take advantage of a lower tax rate. But it does assume that, again, uh, you have um, uh, you know, you, you have the opportunity to to do that. And it's actually functionally useful for you to do that. In other words, um, if you're both on 45% tax rates anyway, for example, the, streaming it between the two is not going to make any difference at all. And the extra layer of, of structure and cost becomes just painful and annoying. Um, people do use it. And again, look, there are people listening, by the way, while I'm summarizing this, who are yelling at the screen or the, the machine and saying, no, no, I use it for this reason, for that purpose. And this is why it's great for me. And it can be. So these are general, general pieces of advice, of course. Uh, trust can be great, though, to let you do that streaming. Um, you, but you do have to distribute the income for tax purposes. Even if you don't actually give them the money, someone's got to pay the tax. So you can leave the money in the trust, but the tax does get streamed to the individual. Um, you can get super complicated with trust and stream the income to someone, the franking credits to somebody else, the capital gains to somebody else. It can get super complex. Generally speaking, though, the cost of setting up and running these things for the most part, for most people, are probably going to be prohibitive for quite a while in your investing life. So just think hard before incurring those costs. SMSF, so what you didn't mention is, is industry or, or, or retail super, by the way. So I'm going to include that. So let's talk about super generally. Super, yes, you're absolutely right. You lock that money away. 
That is a massive downside if you want flexibility. On the flip side, the tax advantage of doing so are phenomenally great. So I'm really torn on this one. Um, I think everybody within reason should probably max out their super contributions first and then go from there. Um, again, not, not personal advice. There's reasons you might not want to. You might want to retire at 45, in which case having that money locked up for another 10 or 15 years is not great. So that's absolutely the downside. But the tax advantages of tax savings are so phenomenally great. Um, it's hard to really justify not doing it um, unless you want to do it. Now, the, the alternative, of course, is both. And so I have money, as I've already said, in my personal account and in my super account. Uh, I will probably always have money in both. And if I want to retire early, then I can use my personal account and let my super do its thing. If I don't, then no harm other than some extra tax paid. Now, I am paying more tax than I have to for that, for that privilege. So that's a, that's a real thing, right? That's not nothing. Um, the, the, the advantage you think you're gaining, the value you think you're gaining by doing that, that's, that's a thing. Uh, and so you want to be really careful in terms of, you know, what you're locking away and what extra tax, or, or conversely, what tax you're paying voluntarily, just for a privilege of a an optionality you may never need. Uh, and so you might want to think about how much goes in each bucket on that basis. And again, as I said, you you kind of mentioned SMSF, but not other super. For most people, it might be useful just growing an industry super fund, super low cost, keeping your costs and compliance burdened down, and using the direct investment option that many superannuation funds offer you, where you can invest seventy five or eighty percent of your money in stocks in the ASX, for example. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too with no additional hassles. That's a lot. Scott, I hope I've helped um, in terms of thinking about the structures that might make most sense for you. I, I would suggest, by the way, spending a little bit of money going to an accountant or a financial advisor and actually getting specific advice for you guys because the everything I've just said, you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, there's that, but I think this, or but I want to do that, or but I'm earning this. Um, and in which case, then those are the questions that a financial advisor can help you with in terms of specifics. In terms of the amount to start with, no, just make it, well, I wouldn't set up a company trust or SMSF with small amounts of money because the fees will kill you. Any advantage you're getting, you're going to lose. So just be thoughtful about that. Um, if, I mean, if you're going to add quickly, starting with a dollar, but you're going to have $100,000 by the end of the year, well, that's a different question, right? Um, but if you're going to build it up slowly, as I'm sure you are, I probably, I mean, at least six figures, right? Um, you hear more from other people, $200,000, $300,000 in some cases, which might be a while away. Um, so have a think about whether that makes sense for you guys. I, uh, yeah, go, go and see a financial advisor is my best advice for everyone listening, uh, just to see what the pros and cons are for your personal situation and circumstances. Broadly, I wouldn't overthink it. Um, I've thought about company trust before. I've never done it for myself or my family. Just, it just feels too hard. Uh, maybe that's a mistake. Uh, I've got an SMSF, but largely because I wanted to invest, direct my own investments and I want to invest and direct them all. And this is what I do for a job. Uh, in a different circumstances, I have no doubt I would choose an industry super fund and do the direct investment option. I think more people have SMSFs than need to, um, unless you know it, it absolutely suits you. People feel like they kind of should, and I get it. So do it if you want to do it, if it works for you. But don't feel like you're kind of obliged to because you're a you want to be a serious investor and so they you must do something complex and structural. Uh, plenty of serious investors have shares just in their own names and do perfectly fine. That was a long, long, long monologue, Doc. Any feedback or thoughts? I think it was a great monologue. <laughs> You're being very kind, mate. You must want no, something. I'll, we'll have to talk I, about that the podcast. I, I think you can apply for an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> the word for boring people. All right, let's, uh, let, let's wrap this one up. If you're not already... I really suggest you should follow us on social media. Now, we haven't yet got Doc on Instagram, so we'll start with Twitter. At Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter account. At TMF Scott P is mine. And at The Motley Fool AU is our corporate account. If you are on the gram, I'm at TMF Scott P. 
The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, and who isn't? Your grandparents are on Facebook these days. You can go to Scott Phillips Money or The Motley Fool Australia. And as I said before, if you want to email us instead, if that's your choice of communication device, then go for it. Info at fool.com.au. We'll get your message to our wonderful member services fools who will pass those straight on to us so we can look after you. Speaking of looking after you, if you want a great investment service, I can highly recommend it because I run it, Motley Fool Share Advisor. And you can join for a pretty good podcast special price by going to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Been around now for almost nine and a half years, still beating the market by a decent margin. Past performance is no guarantee, of course. We're doing our best to find the best medium and large companies on the ASICs we can find at attractive prices we talked about before and recommend them to our members. Uh, one a month, doing, a, I said, a reasonable job thus far, largely because of the people I've worked with rather than me, but I'll take the referred credit, the reflected credit, because I can, because I want to, because it makes it makes me uh, seem smarter. But do join us at fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast for a very, very, very attractive price. Mate, we're done. I'll skip all the usual subscription things. I'm going to assume our listeners have subscribed and all the different various places they can and should subscribe. I'm also sure they've given us a review. They wouldn't surely walk away from this podcast without leaving us a review. So I'm going to assume, dear listener, you have and you will, and I'm going to thank you in advance for your kindness and generosity and for taking the time to help other people find Motley Fool money as well. That's it for this week's Motley Fool money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.